this morning, 1 Samuel 15. And we'll be just doing this one chapter together today. Let me make sure I got this guy going. At Regen, we're all about polish and no substance, so there you go. Okay. Today's my anniversary, by the way, so shout out to Stephanie Tennant. So that's exciting. All right, 1 Samuel 15 begins like this. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, and to Saul Samuel came, bringing with him the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord was, plain and simple, a call to war. A call to war. Not a war of aggression. Not a war motivated by self-defense. It was holy war. Look again at 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel, and donkey. The Lord's command, the Lord's verdict, it's harsh. It is a harsh verdict fitting for a harsh people. Israel first encountered the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17. God's people still smell like seawater. Their bodies still bear the bruises of beatings and the welts of whipping. And seeing their weakness, the Amalekites harass and terrorize the Israelites on their journey to the promised land. So God promises in Deuteronomy 17 this. He says, excuse me, Deuteronomy 25, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, because he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. The time to blot out the memory of Amalek has been coming and is now here. And Saul, Israel's king, is their chosen leader for this task. This task of devoting to destruction an entire people group. Or at least that's how it reads. And when we read it, it gives us pause. It gives people new to the Bible, people familiar with the Bible, pause. So before we get into the rest of the text this morning, I thought it would be helpful to talk about this idea of devoting to destruction. Because if you have friends that are skeptical about the way of Jesus, if you uh, yourself are new to the way of Jesus, heck, if you're not, even if you're familiar with the Bible... Frequent commands in the Old Testament, especially in books of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and now here in 1 Samuel, give us pause that God would, at least it appears, command his people to engage in genocide, to engage in ethnic cleansing. Is that's what's happening here? 
I want to spend a few minutes this morning unpacking this word because I think it's important as missionaries to our friends and our neighbors and our families that we have a good answer for what this word means. And uh, I'm indebted this morning to a guy named John Walton. John Walton is fairly, can be fairly described as one of the most important Old Testament scholars on the face of the planet right now uh, in good old Wheaton, Illinois. And he has written a book called The Lost World of the Canaanite Conquest or the Israelite Conquest. And uh, I'm kind of unpacking for you in about five minutes or less a 200-page book that I skimmed this week. So hopefully I'm able to uh, make a complex thing fairly simple, but I think it's an important thing. If, if a friend of mine were to say to me, uh, you know, I don't know if I can trust the Bible, I don't know if I can trust in this God, because he commands his people to put entire people groups to the sword, I would respond that this is a classic example of reading the Bible, or in this case, misreading the Bible, from the from our current moment in time and in culture, that we are misreading an ancient Eastern document with modern Western eyes, that the authority of the text is found in seeking to understand what the original hearers and original readers would have understood. So John Walton uh, is an Old Testament scholar, but he also is a scholar in the field of just ancient Near Eastern history. Um, this word, it's called cherem in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word, cherem. In the early translations of the English Bible, was translated devote to destruction. But in the years since the early translations of the English Bible, we have made a lot of discoveries of ancient manuscripts, both of the Bible and ancient manuscripts of cultures living around and nearby Israel to get a sense of what this word cherem means. And cherem does not primarily mean to devote to destruction. Cherem primarily means the removal of something from human use. The removal of something from human use. It's a religious term. It's a cultic term used by other neighboring nations to refer to a, a, a holiness act. It first appears actually in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, which should tell us something. Um, cherem refers to the removal of something for human use. And so when God commands here in 1 Samuel 15 or in the book of Judges that, God, that the Israelites harem people groups, it is asking them to remove from their use a neighboring people group, a neighboring people group. And we'll unpack that a little further in a second. But what John Walton does in his book is frame this verb in terms of ancient Near Eastern genre, ancient Near Eastern culture, and then Israelite identity. So let's kind of talk about those three things ever so briefly. Uh, one of them is genre. Oop, ooh, look at that. I'm kind of doing something weird. Hold on. I can do it. Like, let me fix it. I'm reconnecting, so that, that means good things. That's good. Maybe. Oh. Oh, no. Houston, we have a problem. I've lost control. I don't know what to do. Is it still on your screen, Candace? Oh, there we are. Hey, let me join up there. Yeah, yeah. A little more, a little more, a little more. Click. Yes, Lord. Okay, let's try again. Framing this word in terms of genre and culture and then identity. So genre. Genre, if you remember in your English classes, refers to the type of literature that we are reading. 
And the literature before us is not history purely. We call them Old Testament historical books, but they are not purely history. They are history meets epic or myth meets theology, which means no one reading this document, none of the original hearers expected the document to accurately describe the ex- or perfectly describe the extent of destruction nor the number of casualties. There is, within the text, an acceptable amount of hyperbole, an acceptable amount of exaggeration. Uh, We have all sorts of stories with expected and allowed amounts of exaggeration. For example, uh, George Washington never cut down a cherry tree. He also probably told lies, okay? That is a story that we tell with an acceptable amount of exaggeration that is not intended to deceive. It's just something that we take for granted as we're hearing that. Um, Santa Claus is able to hit every house on Christmas Eve. All six billion people's houses, he can get down that chimney. An acceptable, acceptable amount of hyperbole if there ever was one. Acceptable amount of exaggeration if there ever was one. The text in front of us does not seek to name exactly what happens. It seeks to tell a story. Uh, earlier, later on in the text, you'll see that it says that Saul gathers 210,000 men to go to battle. There was nobody counting. There's nobody counting. Uh, that's the Israelite way of saying a really, 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 really big number of people went to war when Saul called on them. It's also a multiple of seven, which is important. Um, So there's some genre here. When we read Devote to Destruction, nobody is imagining as they are reading this that Saul actually put to death every man, woman, child, and infant. It's a statement of um, exaggeration. It's a statement of heroicism, okay? Bible's not lying. It's just using a genre that it would. Culture is also important to think about. Um, Ancient Near Eastern people do not think of themselves as individuals. They think of themselves as groups. This is really hard for us to imagine as Westerners because in the West, we are a society of individuals who occasionally band together for corporate purposes, like, for example, going to war. But the rest of that time, we view ourselves as individuals. Ancient Near Eastern societies, the basic building block of a culture was not an individual, it was a society. It was a, it was a people group, it was a shared identity. And then what typified that shared identity was the king or the priest or whatever icon they had. That, that piece about the king being the face of an identity is going to be important as we get further into 1 Samuel 15. But it really has in mind this call to harem the Amalekites has to do with chasing away a people group by eliminating their king and key leadership. Um, I think this is an interesting thing to think about too. The way that we see this individualism versus collectivism work itself out in Western society is when an African-American person, like in all of these shootings of black people in our, in our society right now, when one African-American person dies, every African-American person is wounded by that. When one white person dies, I don't feel that personally, right? There's a cultural difference, which is why the average white person will say, I'm not racist, I have black friends. Because they do not, they perceive this problem individually, whereas the African-American community perceives racism to be a communal problem. See what I'm doing there? And this is kind of what's happening in the text is what Israel is trying to do is chase away a people group because that people group also represents chaos in the text. And a lot of the Old Testament is about God 
removing chaos and implanting order in his land. Um, so I would say a couple things. If a person said to me, doesn't the Bible talk about God commit, sending people to commit genocide? I would say, well, no, because first of all, the genre in front of us, when we actually read the Bible on its own terms, is assuming some exaggeration, assuming some heroic language, and so it wouldn't be committing genocide because it's already kind of using some hyperbolic language to talk about the removal of a people group, probably by killing their king and their key leaders. Um, in the book of... Um, Daniel, it talks about how the Babylonians take the ruling class out of Israel. That's harem. That's hareming them. Uh, it's removing from their use this kind of certain group of people. I would also talk a little bit about what is the identity that Israel is called to have. Israel is called to have a holy nation. And the reason that they are called to remove these people groups from their midst and take possession of the land is that a non-Israelite community next to them makes it almost certain that the Israelites will intermarry with them and then go worship their gods. So there's a holiness piece. It is about God bringing about his people's holiness by the removal of other identities from the land, usually by removing their leadership, yes, through acts of war, but it is not as graphic or as gruesome as we see. And this is one of these classic examples where somehow regen has established itself in a niche in our area by just trying to talk about the Bible with some level of intelligence and thoughtfulness and like a longer explanation of an issue than, than the average person would give. Because what we're often asked, what we often feel like we have to do when the Bible talks about, I don't know, killing whole groups of people, we feel this pressure to make something that is objectively bad and do some sort of spiritual gymnastics to talk about why it's good. And interestingly, the Bible doesn't call this good. The Bible is just saying what happened. Okay? Everything that, this is another common misconception about the Bible, everything that the Bible reports isn't something that the Bible approves of. It's talking about human weakness and human frailty and chaos and about God's ability to bring order through that over the long haul ultimately in Jesus. Which, by the way, this is where your New Testament referent for this is. Um, the New Testament, like our application of this idea of devoting to destruction is not like, let's go to war against Muslims. Um, I literally have had a person tell me that, um, that uh, Israel went to war against false nations, so Christians are supposed to, I mean, yeah, it was a very strange conversation. Um, it was one of those get off my team moments, you know, like, please don't tell anybody that you think this and that you're a Christian and that you know me, right? Don't tell. Um, but the New Testament reference for this is when Paul says that we are to put off the old self we harem, we remove from our use certain forms of sexual practice, certain ways of speaking, say like unkind, judgmental, harsh words. We put those off. We harem, we remove those from our use so that people see us as the holy people that Jesus has called us to be. So, one more time. A person in your circle says, God says, you know, commit genocide, and, and you say, well, no, that's not true. And they say, why? You have two options. You can memorize this, or you could say, go listen to the podcast uh, where my pastor talks about this a little bit, or read this book. But no, God isn't ever committing people to commit, a, to commit genocide. I mean, he is telling them to go to war against a certain group of people. I mean, that is true. But he is not committing, commanding them to commit, like, wipe out a people group. There's some, there's some bigger genre. And the reality is that God always works with Israel in the history and culture that they're in. He does not advance them, right? He does not advance, like, no point in the Bible, side note, does God reveal 
advance scientific knowledge to his people. He's always kind of working within what they know to lead them toward himself. It's very interesting. So that's Harem. So, back to the text, 1 Samuel 15. Go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill this long list of people. Verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tel Aim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, the Kenites were a tribe that was nice to them on their way through that now populate the land where the Amalekites are. Saul said to the Kenites, go and depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you show kindness to the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed among the, Israel, the, the Amalekites. I mean, they like hightailed it out of there, you know what I'm saying? And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The text reports that Saul has been given a clear command to do something and that Saul only does it part way. The text report that Saul is clearly commanded to do something and that Saul only does it part way. The key factor here is that he leaves the king alive. The head of the identity group, he leaves alive. The one person that really needed to be put to death to remove the identity, he keeps that person alive. And so this happens in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. The last time the Lord regretted something was in Genesis chapter 6, where the Lord regrets ever having made mankind, and so he sends a flood to wipe them out. This cues us to know something bad is probably going to happen next, okay? Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night, and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Okay, Saul, who is it? Is it they or I? For the people, is it the people, Saul, or is it you? The people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. 1 Samuel 15 is chock full of interesting tidbits, most importantly, the Lord's own emotional life, because that regretting thing comes in a couple more times. He regrets that he has made Saul king, and when Samuel arrives on the scene, he has what we are now calling for the third week in a row, the where do I even begin feeling? Like, where do I even start with Saul, who has so flagrantly done all these things? I mean, notice a few things. 
First, Saul wins the battle and sets up a monument to himself. It's very common. In fact, other kings do this. We won. Let's build an altar. Let's sacrifice. Let's make sure that let's like give honor to the Lord for giving us this victory. Saul says, hey guys, I did a really good job. Let's build, an, let's build a little statue for big old Saul here and go on home. That's one problem. Samuel can barely hear a thing when he arrives over the bleeding of sheep and oxen and calves that were supposed to be dead at this point. Saul's disobedience is covered by some sort of religious language. Well, I thought maybe we could sacrifice them. But what's most damning is when questioned, Saul calls the Lord, not the Lord my God, but to Samuel, the Lord your God, twice in the text. Then Saul comes to Samuel with a spring in his step, all of this going on in the background, and he says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Look at me. Look at how great I've done. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. And we're left to wonder, I mean, is small just stupid? Is he smug? It seems like he's a little bit of both. We've never gotten a glimpse of this, but verse 23 of this chapter says that Saul is presumptuous and rebellious. In other words, Saul isn't just fumbling and bumbling anymore. Saul knows exactly what he's doing. Saul happily and pridefully thinks that he has done well before the Lord when all he has really given is partial obedience. And if you're a parent, you know this. Partial obedience is not obedience at all. Partial obedience is not obedience at all. So the result of this partial obedience that is really disobedience is expressed in verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Saul says, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not. Uh Uh-oh. I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away, and Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you, a.k.a. David. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Isn't that interesting? The text says he's, doesn't, he's not going to have regret because he's not a man who has regret. Earlier in the text, it says that he has regret. Great example of how the Bible doesn't contradict itself unless it really wants to. One commentator says what the Lord is saying is, I'm not going to have regret about having regret. I'm not going to second guess my, my new choice of a king. I'm not going to regret my regret. Verse 32, we find Samuel finishing the job. Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, saying, surely the bitterness of death is past. What's Agag thinking? Agag's thinking, well, that was close. I'm getting out by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. But watch this. Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. It's a sick burn. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Isn't it fun how the Bible is so cuddly and fun? Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went up to his house in Gibeah. And Samuel did not see Saul until the day of his death. Uh, Ramah and Gibeah are 10 miles apart. 
Listen, like, I live in Champion. I grew up in Cortland. Like, I'm running into people that I graduated from high school much to my discomfort all the time. It's to my discomfort because I don't remember anybody, which means I'm texting Jenna Byler and saying, I just met this person. Here's their physical description. Do you know who I'm talking about? And by the way, she almost always does. Um, they live 10 miles apart and never again see each other. That's not a, again, that is not just a statement of geography. That is, a, that, is a, that is not spatial. That is spiritual. Here's the king and the prophet separated. The king and the prophet separated. So what exactly is Saul's failure? Saul's failure is in, is in verses 17 through 23. Samuel said, you know, you're little in your own eyes. But aren't you the head of the tribes of Israel? It's like Samuel has, like, it's, it's like he went to therapy with Saul there for a minute. Hey, buddy, we've got a, you got a self-esteem problem here. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil? And Saul said to Samuel in verse 20, I've, listen to this, this is, it's just outright flagrant. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. And now I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, but the people took of the spoil and the sheep and the oxen and the best things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. And Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burning offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. This is, this is like saying to your kids, a white lie is as bad as murdering somebody. He's trying to equate a small thing in Saul's eyes with how great it is in the Lord's eyes. Rebellion is in the, as the sin of divination. The presumption is iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord and he has also rejected you from being king. This is like the height of the text, the climax of the story. It's the core of the problem. And here there are three little words that upon reading back through 1 Samuel 15, you will find are the most repeated words. By the way, what I'm trying to teach you is when you're reading Old Testament narrative, just look for words that repeat. Gives you a big clue into the meaning of the text. Because word is used seven times, listen is used two times, voice is used four times, including in when he says, what is the bleeding of the sheep in my ear? The Hebrew word for that is, what is the voice of the sheep in my ear? Saul's problem is simple. Saul has failed to listen, and Saul has failed to obey. Doesn't take an MDiv in anything, doesn't take a master's in anything to read through this text and come to the conclusion that Saul's greatest problem is his inability to listen and his inability to obey. Saul marches out and proudly says, I've performed the commandments of the Lord, Samuel. Look at me, I did it. Meanwhile, Samuel sees that Saul has presumptuously erected a monument to his own glory failed to hear the instruction that the Lord gave him, listened to the people's voice instead of the Lord's voice, this is Saul's failure. Saul's failure is to listen and to heed and to obey. And Samuel sums this up in a line that is both haunting and easy to remember. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed better than the 
fat of rams. Of course, we haven't sacrificed a ram this morning, nor do we have any plans to. They were, the, the market on rams was really high, so we'll do that later in July. It's totally kidding. Some of us are new to Jesus, and they're like, I didn't know that was part of it. Uh, but what does this look like for us? I can't help but wonder if we are like Saul. We come into church on Sunday morning and we leave with the spring in our step and we say, I've performed the commandments of the Lord. Look at me. I could have been doing all sorts of other things this morning, but I went to church and I sang the songs and I took of the bread and the cup and I took some notes and I shook some hands and I smiled at people and we feel like we've done something, don't we? And we have. We have. But if we're not careful... The hour that we spend on Sunday morning is just a little bit more than a spectacle. It is the appearance of godliness with none of its power because if we took a snapshot of our lives, of our brains, of our, if we had a little tape recorder of our inner monologues from some random point in this week and and we played them, would there be any real functional difference between us and somebody that's not in this room? To obey is better than to sacrifice. We leave on Sunday mornings feeling proud that we've come to church and we rest on the laurels of our public obedience. And when we do that, we've done little more than Saul, who builds up a monument to his own name, not to the Lord's. What we find in 1 Samuel 15 is that it is harder to impress the Lord than we thought it might be. In fact, in Matthew 23, Jesus calls these public displays of obedience these outward things that don't match our insides. Remember, it's all about your outsides matching your insides. And when our outsides don't match our insides, there's one word for that. It's called hypocrisy. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe, that is give 10%, of your mint and dill and cumin. Think of for a moment about the precision and time it would take to give exactly 10% of fresh dill. Exactly 10% of your fresh mint. Exactly 10% of your cumin. You've tithed mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, Jesus says. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. That's an important caveat, isn't it? These you ought to have done. Good for you for tithing them 10% of your mint, dull, and cumin. These you should have done without neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus says, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat and you eat a camel. Gnats and camels were foods that Israel was not supposed to eat. I think everybody can get behind both. But Jesus points out the irony of going to all the work to strain one little gnat, one little fruit fly out of a drink while feasting on a steak of camel. When we come to church and leave with the spring in our step, I have obeyed the commands of the Lord, but we fail to become a listening people. We fail to become an obedient people. We neglect what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law. And this is the weightier matter of the law, hearing God's voice and doing what he says. hearing God's voice, and doing what he says. If I could, I would reverse roles. 
you guys are hearing sermons that the boom has been brought way down low in this book. Um, there's challenge, then there's high challenge, and then there's First and Second Samuel and the sermons in here. But I wish the roles were reversed because you get in and out of this in under 40 minutes. I spend hours in the text all week, and it sucks. It's hard. Uh, it's in your face. The boom is brought down. And very, very often in First Samuel, it does not tell us what to do, does it? Instead, it, it presents Hannah and Samuel and Saul and Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. It presents these people and holds them up like a mirror and says, hey, is there any of this in you today? Is there Saul inside of you? Is there Saul inside of me? But today's one of those days that we can't say that the text doesn't tell us what to do. Today's one of those days where it's more than just a mirror, it is a command. To obey is better than to sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. The text today puts before us the ultimate marker of being the people of Jesus. Not your voting, not your morals, not your church attendance, not the good things that you have done. No, the ultimate marker is hearing God's voice and doing what he says. It's obedience. Holiness is not just some outward ritual, but about hearts that are poised and ready to hear and, gosh darn it, obey. Be doers of the word, Paul says, not just hearers only. This idea of listening is especially hard for me in a season where listening feels just about impossible. This time last year, I would wake up in the morning and I would take my Bible and my journal and a couple books that I was working my way through and I would sit on our back deck. I know I was outside, it was weird. And um, I, 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 I would sit on my back deck and I would spend time in study and time listening and journaling and praying. And then on January 19th, we had this little gift given to us. His name is Jack. Uh, and everything that I would have once said, Kyle is at his best when he, this, this, and this. All of those things are gone. And if it weren't for my profession, being the one responsible to go and hear from the Lord and study and delve and come back to you, I don't know if I would know what the voice of Jesus sounds like anymore. What I'm saying is that seasons change and make it so complex for us uh, to do this. And by the way, goodness gracious, if you are single and unmarried and without children, like I love you to death, but you are without excuse. Because the minute you get married and then the minute you have children, what little margin you have left is sucked into a black hole of obligation. I was just telling you it's true. <laughs> Lord is gracious and kind, but also insists that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. We're called to be listening people and hearing people and obeying people. And for about 80% of our community, maybe 75%, the truth of the matter is that you know the thing to do, you're just not doing it. It's not a matter of lack of understanding. It's not that we've not, you, you not, you've not been discipled yet. It's not that you don't, I mean, you know. 
You've been in church long enough. You've been walking with Jesus long enough. And you know the step of obedience that Jesus is calling you to take, and you're just not taking it. And that's okay. He's very patient. But there's another 20% of us that are saying, you know, Kyle, I was just kind of trying to figure out Jesus. I'm coming to church more regularly. Like, I'm feeling like I'm rocking and rolling on that. And now you are throwing me all the way back into the book of Samuel and into the chaos of the Old Testament. And it feels like kind of the Blair Witch Project that somebody is taking the camera and like shaking it around. These kinds of sermons can be overwhelming. This is why it's good news that you have your whole life to figure some of these things out. And we are happy to walk with you and disciple you and shepherd you into these things, but there is a simple practice that I think could draw us all together to be a more listening community. By the way, this is why we're doing prayer nights, to learn to be a listening community. Part of our prayer time last time I, I won't be here, but I assume this time, was giving space to let people hear from God and then respond to that. This is why, by the way, at the end of every sermon, Aaron or someone else comes up and says, we want to respond to God. Use the back of your program. What did God say? What got your attention? How can you live into that? But a simple practice in listening can be waking up and asking these questions, finding some sort of margin in the day to ask, Father, what are we doing today? To ask, Father, what do I need to be reminded of today? To ask, who do I need to pay attention to today? Now, my child is not old enough to open the door and come bother me in the shower. Uh, When he is, I'll get back to you on this, but I have found that the shower is a helpful time for me to practice this. Driving somewhere is a helpful time for me to practice this. And I have found consistently that the Lord, and as I've taught this to others, that the Lord uses this to teach me to be a listener and he responds. And I would say, I have found as I have discipled people in this, the first two questions are hard to, rem- hard to figure out an answer for, but almost every time when you ask the Father, who, who should I pay attention to today, we get an answer for that. You get a clear sense of that. So use the clarity of the third question to help you learn what it is to answer the first two. Okay. A listening people. But here's the problem. And 1 Samuel 15 points this out beautifully. We are called to be a listening and obeying people. In fact, this is the very thing that will help the world know that we belong to Jesus, our holiness identity. But the reality is, as much as we would like to, it is impossible for us to listen and obey every time without fail. At least it is for me. And so the text presents a quandary. What do I do with my weakness? What do I do with my inability to follow through? What do I do with that? It also presents a quandary as we see the rising darkness in Saul in these chapters, a darkness that will now just be let loose all over the place in an ugly, ugly way through the end of the book, as we see the rising darkness in Saul, we can't help but ask, what kind of king is there to lead us? What kind of king is there to lead us? And as a matter of fact, it's not just a Sunday school answer. Jesus is the answer to both questions because Jesus is the king fit to lead his people after dozens of failures. Jesus is the king to lead us. And in our frailty and in our weakness and in our sin and in our disobedience, 
Jesus is the king that sets us free from that. Saul fails to listen to the word of the Lord, and he is removed from kingship. But Jesus, our rightful king, is the word. He is the very utterance of the Father made flesh for us. He is full of grace and truth. He is faithful from first to last. He lives not by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. And the destructive darkness in Saul is countered by the light of the world, the light which the darkness cannot extinguish. This is our King Jesus, the Word made flesh, who makes his tabernacle among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, who lives righteously and takes on himself our sin and our disobedience to set us free from the chains that hold us back, to set us free from the stuff that fills our ears, to pick piece of wool by piece of wool by piece of wool out so that we can know the truth of what Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. This is Jesus. I'm trying to end on a note of grace, friends. I'm trying to draw our attention to the true king of our heart who in our failure and fumbling is good, is good and kind to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the blood, the fat of rams. The Lord takes more delight in doing what he says than in sacrifice. Let's pray. Jesus is an intimidating thing to think about listening to your voice. It's an intimidating thing to be responsible for hearing And yet you invite us in to know you and to be known by you, to love you. And so, God, my prayer is that we would be a community that helps people hear the voice that they were always made to hear, even in these moments together. Amen. It is everyone's favorite time. It is time to respond to what we um, just heard. Some of you, as Kyle was preaching, things stood out to you. And uh, this is just a chance to um, kind of reflect on some of that. I would encourage you to write it down, not because there's anything spiritual about writing, but because it just helps you remember and kind of focus your thoughts. Um, If you are unsure of what you would like to be reflecting on Kyle gave us some questions uh, that are now gone but they were what do I need reminded of today what are we doing who do I need to pay attention to so there's some freebies for you we will take some time and then we will do communion